Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd and I'm currently just outside Tokyo Station where the Olympic clock continues to count down to July 23rd, the day the Tokyo Olympics is meant to start and also my birthday. I'll let you decide which one is more important. The clock is currently on 156 days, 11 hours, 35 minutes and 52 seconds, meaning there's just five months and six days to go until that opening ceremony. Yet large swaths of the country are still under a state of emergency and the first vaccine has only just been approved for use in Japan. As if those weren't big enough challenges to overcome, the Tokyo Olympic Organising Committee was plunged into scandal earlier this month after its president, Yoshiro Mori, opined that women talk too much in board meetings when he was asked to comment on the Japan Olympic Committee's plan to increase the number of women board members to more than 40% of the total. Currently, just three of its 25 members are women. Joining me today is Matoko Rich, the New York Times Tokyo Bureau Chief, here to explain how the scandal unfolded, Mori's eventual resignation, and what Mori's comments say about the status of women in Japanese society. Matoko Rich, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with a little bit of history. We're talking today about the resignation of Tokyo Olympic Committee President Yoshiro Mori. But before he was known for his role on the Olympic Committee, who was Mori? Well, Mori-san has a little bit of a, a storied history in that he was a very short-lived prime minister of Japan from April 2000 to 2001, and it was a rather gaff-filled reign, if you will. Um, he made some controversial jokes about how when he was running for office in 1969, he felt that people weren't rushing to shake his hand, and he said some you know horrible remark about how it made him feel like he had AIDS. Um, he made some controversial remarks when visiting a Shinto shrine about how Japan was a nation of God centered on the emperor, which of course is something that they renounced in the post-war constitution. So he's generally been thought of as a little bit of a, a gaffer, if you will. The other thing about him is his reputation um, very much as a kind of behind-the-scenes fixer who knows everybody important in Japanese politics and that a lot of powerful subsequent prime ministers have kind of had behind-the-scenes support from him that is considered quite important. So that sort mm. of explains his enduring power. Um, I think from the outside, people who don't know that much about Japanese politics would look at the Olympics and be kind of curious as to why a former prime minister who was quite old at the time of his appointment, and frankly, you know, he hadn't lasted very long, his um, reputation had sunk so low that he had a, the, the cabinet of, of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party sunk to something like six or seven percent when he was mm. prime minister. Looking in from the outside, foreigners would say, like, why would this be the person that you would choose to be the international face of the most important sporting event on the international calendar? Like, why would he be the leader? But he did have a lot of connections. He had been president of Japan Rugby Football Union from 2005 to 2015, and he was instrumental in helping bring um, the Rugby World Cup to Japan, as well as, of course, the 2020 Summer Olympics. So he's this gaff-prone, influential political figure. Right. He left after a year in office as prime minister with a single-digit approval rating. Right. So how did he become involved with the Olympics and, as you said, become this very public face of this huge international sporting event? 
Right. Well, so like I said, because he had a lot of connections behind the scenes and um, effectively an Olympic bid is always a very political process. He was selected partly because of his political behind the scenes um, influence, but also because he did have a lot of um, experience with sports from his um, presidency at the head of the rugby football union. Rugby is very popular in Japan and then also helping bring the Rugby World Cup. And so he became, uh, I believe it was a vice chairman of the Tokyo Olympic Bid Committee. Um, and then in 2014, he was appointed um, president of the organizing committee for the Olympic and Paralympic Games. And he was 76 years old. Yes, which is obviously quite old to be heading a major event like this. Interestingly, even he reflected on this when he took on the role, saying something like, I'm destined to live five or six more years if I'm lucky. This will be one of my last services to the country. So he was aware he was getting on a bit. Right. Well, we don't want to be ageist, of course. The prime minister himself is 73. The president of the United States is 78 years old. So it's not as if somebody of that age is incapable of being a leader. Um, but yes, it, it, in some ways, one might have thought that to lead the Olympic Games, that, you know, it's an, a, a premier athletic event, that perhaps somebody a bit younger and more, you know, closer to the age of the athletes competing and the, the sense of vibrancy. Um, some people might have thought that was more inappropriate, but certainly his gaff-prone history was known. Um, I believe that when he was at a press conference at the Sochi Olympics, the international press already questioned why there appeared to be so few women on the uh, Olympic organizing committee, and he seemed to be a little bit defensive about that. He was also questioned about why he was speaking in Japanese at an international event, and he was a little bit defensive about that. So certainly from the international press corps' view, there may have already been some questions about his leadership. Uh, It's not totally clear to me whether those same questions were being asked within Japan, given his power in the political establishment here. At the beginning of this month, on the 3rd of February, there was a meeting at which Maury made his resignation-worthy comments about female board members saying that they speak too much. You reported on those comments, that meeting and the fallout from it. So could you explain to us what happened on that day? So it was actually after a meeting of the Japan Olympic Committee. And there's a sort of Japanese, I don't know if it's actually has force of law, but that along with a lot of initiatives to increase the participation of women across the board, there's been a lot of uh, effort to increase the number of women in executive positions and in board positions. So similarly, on the board of the Japan Olympic Committee, there was this initiative to increase the number of women on the committee to 40% of the total members. And how many members of the board currently women of the japan olympic committee we're talking three women out of 25 so it's 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 not near 40 percent yet and so in making comments about um raising the percentage of women to to 40 percent he said well in my experience um when they're on boards with a lot of women the board meetings take too long because the women talk too much he said that the women were competing with each other to talk as much as possible which on its face, I think a lot of people immediately said, if you've ever been to an executive board meeting in Japan, that's just sort of ridiculous. The men certainly speak as much, if not more, than the woman. There was no way in which it was not demeaning to women, the comment. And 
uh, as it turned out, there were reporters at this portion of the meeting, and um, both the Asahi Shimbun, which is where I saw it, um, and I think Yahoo News may have just been picking up the Asahi report, these comments were reported. And there was an immediate, pretty quick backlash on social media that how could he possibly say this? This is incredibly demeaning to women. Um, and then, in fact, we wrote about it, and it seemed to, you know, the NHK and TBS and a number of Japanese media started picking up on the fact that the Times was writing about it. So then it kind of spun into foreign medias covering this. The mm -hmm. Japanese media jumped on it, and it really did become a huge scandal after that, where nobody was talking about anything else with regard to the Olympics. And that it was interesting because that very day, my colleague in sports and I had been reporting on the first of the playbooks that had been issued by Tokyo 2020, which were kind of the rules and protocols that they were putting into place to try to make the Olympics safe, because they really do want to put the Olympics on. And so these were kind of rules for protecting people from getting infected with COVID. And that was supposed to be the big news of the day and was completely overshadowed by Maury's comments. Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, so what was your initial reaction to hearing those comments? Could you believe that he would say something like that? You know, obviously, we know he's gaff prone, but... Well, I think gaff prone uh, lets him off the hook a little too mm. much. Like, you know, it, it, it seemed that it reflected his true beliefs because he really did double down on it and try to defend his remarks and explain his remarks. He w it wasn't just like he made this co one comment. So... I, I didn't think of it as a gaffe. I thought, you know, this is horrifying that he thinks this way. Mm. But in terms of surprise, perhaps not so surprising. I mean, his generation and he in particular have been shown to demonstrate these kind of de demeaning attitudes toward women before. So sadly, I, I can't say that I was surprised. Um, I was, um, you know, in some ways shocked that they came out. I mean, I... I from what, from talking to women and reporting on gender extensively in Japan and talking to a lot of women who've been in various meetings with men and the kinds of things that they tell me that are said, that are done, um, you know, in terms of how women who are reporters and how much kind of basically sexual harassment they have to put up with, uh, I'm not surprised at all that this um, kind of thing is said behind closed doors. I mean, in some ways, we could say we were, quote-unquote, lucky that a reporter from the Asahi Shimbun was there and reported on it so that it came out. It was, you know, finally shown some sunlight. So that was my initial reaction. And then, of course, I was watching, my colleagues and I were watching the kind of enormous social media mm. response that followed, such that he was then forced to give a press conference the next day. Mm. Well, let's go through some of those reactions then, starting with this huge social media backlash you just mentioned. What did we see coming across social media in the days that followed his remarks? Right. Well, some variation on Modi resign was definitely trending as a hashtag in Japanese Twitter. There were a lot of people who were definitely upset. There was also a lot of commentary on his age, right? This is a doddering old fool type of stuff. So there was certainly a combination of criticism of both the sexist remarks, but also of his age. That being said, there were also people defending him, you know, the usual don't get so sensitive. Or, uh, well, in my experience, women do talk too much in meetings. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a lot of reflection of that. Before the press conference, he gave an interview to the Mainichi Shimbun in which he talked about his wife, his daughter, and his granddaughter all chastising him. And he suggested, by the way, they said, you have again embarrassed us. Uh, how could you say such a thing? You need to stop saying such things. So it sounded like 
his own family um, were not surprised, but also dismayed and kind of frustrated by the fact that he continuously makes these kinds of remarks, but also because they were all women, were sort of saying, you can't say this, this is not true, you should not hold these kinds of attitudes about women. Yeah, the message clearly hadn't sunk in yet. One thing I noticed that picked up steam very quickly was the change.org petition, which I believe received around 150,000 signatures calling for his resignation. It was translated into English, but originated in in Japanese and yes, signed by all these people wanting Yoshiro Mori to resign. I talked to one of the authors of that petition, Fukuda Kazuko, and she was really impressive because it wasn't just a blanket like Mori resign. Mm. It was quite a thoughtful petition if you read the full kind of request that they were asking people to sign, that it was not just saying this man should resign, but rather that we should think about the context that created um, a situation where he felt comfortable saying these remarks, what it represents Mm. about the culture in the Olympic Committee, but more broadly in Japanese society. And so it was calling for a more kind of rigorous introspection of gender roles within the organizing committee and within Japanese society. So it wasn't just saying, you know, let's get rid of this man and that will solve the problem. There was a definite acknowledgement that it's not just about this one individual. So this initial backlash led to a press conference given by Maury the day after he made those remarks on February 4th. So what happened there? Because I believe his kind of apology press conference influenced the way that the IOC reacted to his comments in the days that followed as well. So he gave a very brief press conference on uh, uh, Thursday, February 4th. I attended um, online. They had a Microsoft Teams link set up. Um, and But it was very interesting watching his attitude because he gives this sort of, you know, I apologize if you were offended type apology. Um, I wish to retract the comments. <laughs> Um, But there was sort of this sense, both in the apology and then in interviews he subsequently gave, that it was almost as much a matter of expediency as a genuine apology or a sense of contrition. It was more a sense of his remarks and the subsequent scandal were distracting from the Olympics and that, you know, here we are five months away from trying to put on what is already a controversial event, right? That 80% of the Japanese public is hesitant or wants it either to be canceled or postponed. There are a lot of sports organizations and Olympic committees around the world that are wondering whether this can really be pulled off. A lot of athletes are worried. Um, There's nowhere near blanket uh, herd immunity globally, much less in Japan. So he's already tried to push through this very controversial event, and then on top of it, his remarks are distracting from those efforts. So it seemed like the apology was made in order to sort of in the hopes that we could all quickly move on from it. And then when a couple of reporters who were present in person started to ask him about that, he got very defensive and sort of his tone seemed to be attacking some of the Japanese reporters who were asking, like, you know, do you acknowledge that these were demeaning uh, remarks? Have you actually taken responsibility for the sentiments behind them? And he was, you know, quite rough and then kind of cut off people and then cut off the press conference. So so the overall impression that I think a lot of people were left with was, hmm, 
hmm, not sure this guy is is really all that regretful. And then he went on uh, a TV news program and basically said as much that, you know, I did this because I knew it was the quickest way to put it behind us. Uh, you know, I knew that this was distracting from the Olympics, so I went out and made this apology. Um, it was leaked that um, someone had begged him, that he had offered to resign, but mm. that Muto and others had begged, Muto, the CEO of, of the Olympic Tokyo 20 Olympic Committee, had begged him to stay. So I think there was sort of this whole kind of theatrical aspect of the apology. But what was interesting is, to go back to your question about the IOC, was that um, shortly after he gave his apology, a couple of reporters asked, and they put out a statement saying, he's made an apology and we consider the issue closed. Mm. And with so much uncertainty that already exists around this summer's games, I assumed that the IOC's thinking there is that they were hoping this incident would just blow over and they wouldn't have to be confronted with the idea of losing the person that's in charge of the Tokyo Organising Committee just a few months out from the Games. Well, one of the narratives that emerged... um immediately after the scandal broke and then even after his apology was that one of the reasons why it was quote-unquote essential for Tomori to stay on was because the games were only five months away. He had been president of the committee for seven years and that to change horses this late in the game could potentially derail the whole event and that, you know, he was indispensable. That was sort of kind of the narrative that was emerging and it's quite possible uh, that the IOC agreed with that narrative and felt that, that that was the only way to contain it. But fast forward a few days and the pressure internationally that the, he his remarks were being condemned. No one was accepting his apology. That petition was out there. Human Rights Watch was very um, vocal about uh, pointing out that not only were the remarks themselves offensive, but the signal that it sent to have a person who would make such remarks at the top of the organizing committee of the host nation was, you know, antithetical to the values of the Olympics themselves, in which gender equality is considered part of the values of the DNA of the Olympics. Absolutely. And it's it's worth noting that in the Tokyo Olympics vision statement, point two of the three prongs that make up the vision is this concept of unity and diversity. Right. So it's very hard to sort of say that that's your value when you have the president of your organizing committee making these kinds of remarks, these demeaning remarks about half the population. So on February 9th, the IOC came out with an entirely different statement, which was the recent comments of Tokyo 2020 President Mori were absolutely inappropriate and in contradiction to the IOC's commitments and the reforms of its Olympic Agenda 2020. So there the writing started to seem to be on the wall that Moody's days were numbered in his role. Mm, But they didn't go so far as to actually call for his resignation. There was no explicit call by the IOC for him to step down. Um, And in, you know, the Japanese political firmament, it was at first, you know, a little bit, uh, a lot of commentators were dismayed that, you know, up starting with Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga down through the um, uh, cabinet minister in charge of gender equality and the Olympics, Seiko Hashimoto, that they would say that they were disappointed in his remarks, but they were not explicitly calling for him to step down. That he seemed to still have the support of the political establishment, despite the sort of uh, acknowledgement that that his remarks were, quote-unquote, disappointing. 
Yeah, well, I, I think the Prime Minister as well offered a particularly feeble criticism of Maury's comments, saying that they were not desirable for national interests, which, you know, barely counts as criticism. Right, right. And he actually got, you know, full-throated support from the head of the LDP, Toshihiro Nikai, who basically said, look, he apologized, that, that ends the matter, like, let's move on. Um, and even um, Governor Koike, while again expressing disappointment, you know, as the governor of Tokyo and one of the most prominent woman politicians in Japan, there were a lot who were expecting, a lot of people who were expecting her to come out more with a more full-throated criticism. And again, it was sort of more of a disappointment, although she did say that she wasn't going to attend a high-level meeting where he would be present because she thought it wouldn't send a positive message given the current situation. But, you know, again, it's a little bit of an oblique criticism. It's not exactly a direct head-on, like, this guy should resign commentary. So when did we find out that Mori was actually planning to resign from his role? Well, in the way of a lot of these kinds of decisions or announcements in Japan, you get a lot of signaling in the run-up. There's sort of the leaks to all the Kisha clubs that there is, you know, word on the street is that he's likely to step down, and then you get an official invitation to a press conference at which he will be making remarks before the executive board committee meeting, and then there will be another you know, press conference after the executive board meeting. So you kind of know. I think that came two days before the actual announcement, so we were all preparing that the, the signs were very much pointing toward him resigning. And then the day before that press conference, th this was kind of quite the drama that Saburo Kawabuchi, who was the former, he, you know, he's a Japanese footballer, also former um, head of the Japan Football Association, i.e. soccer for, for Americans who might be listening, um, uh, was the kind of hand-chosen successor. And he even gave an interview in which he said, if asked, I will accept. So it seemed mm -hmm. like it had all been sewn up that there was going to be this you know, official resignation on Friday with an immediate appointment of his replacement, which we all noted was a gentleman who was 84, one year older um, than the person who was resigning. So there was a lot of commentary about, oh my goodness, you know, Mm. Um, what kind of change can this possibly represent? Um, Maybe they were hoping the extra year would bring a little more wisdom to the comments Kawabuchi might uh, make. Uh, possibly, yes. Uh, one year of, of uh, one more year around the sun gives him more wisdom. Um, but the fact that he was already sort of saying in public that if asked, I would accept. That seems pretty extraordinary to me. I mean, mm. usually in the in the manner of the kind of kabuki uh, rollout of these things, there's it's all no comment, no comment, no comment, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But this seemed like a uh, you know much bigger wink than normal. That that the hand chosen successor uh, of Modi himself would basically tell the world that he had been chosen and was planning to step right into Modi's shoes. And so then there was a lot of outrage, not only about his age, but also about the fact that this seemed like an entirely undemocratic process, right? Mm -hmm. And there was also word that the IOC um, president, Thomas Bach, had suggested, look, as you step aside, you should consider appointing co-chairs, and that one of the chairs, co-chairs should be woman. And there was reporting in the Japanese media that uh, Modi found that unacceptable. And so that's why he was choosing Kawabuchi-san. And I think there was an incredible backlash after all of those um, little tidbits leaked. 
So this was all happening on Thursday, 11th February, right? Which was right. also a national holiday to the delight of right, journalists right. having to cover this and, you know, pulled in to, to, to cover this and losing their day off. But his resignation announcement didn't actually come until the following day, Friday, 12th, last Friday. You were obviously watching the press conferences. So could you talk us through what happened on that day and how the announcement was actually made? Sure. It was about three o'clock on Friday when he um, gave his sort of opening remarks before the um, hastily called executive board meeting. And that is when he sort of announced his intention to resign. And then there was this very long meeting and they called a press conference that was initially supposed to start at 5.15, but they kept postponing and postponing and postponing, which sort of made many of us in the media question just who was talking too much in the meeting that is leading them to postpone this to some, you know, I don't think the actual press conference started till after 6.30 p.m., so that was, you know, more than an hour later than originally called for. But the press conference was after the meeting that was Toshiro Muto, who's the CEO of the organizing committee and uh, spokesman for Tokyo 2020, and it was announced that it was not going to be Kawaguchi-san who would be taking over, that he had even announced that he would, I think something along the lines of, he would decline the invitation to be appointed if asked, although it seemed clear he was no longer going to be asked, and that there was going to be a new committee, selection committee, in which the members of the selection committee would be evenly divided between men and women to select a successor. Mm. And, and if it won't be Kawabuchi taking over from Mori at the moment, who seems a likely candidate to lead the Tokyo Olympic Committee? I mean, I think it's probably only safe to talk definitively about the one person whose name was sort of officially floated around quite a bit was Hashimoto Seiko, who is currently the cabinet minister um, who oversees the Olympics, as well as the cabinet minister for gender equality. She's a you know Olympic medalist herself. Um, there was some question it would be um, unusual for someone who's a current serving lawmaker to be appointed to such a position, because then there was a question of whether she could simultaneously hold the position while holding a position in the Japanese diet parliament. But I've now been seeing all kinds of names talked about Japanese media. I was watching uh, a morning show on Asahi TV yesterday where they put up a graphic that seemed to have, you know, a dozen people, many of whom were women. Um, but, you know, scanning media and, and, and of course, it's hard to penetrate the selection process, but it, it's not clear who's being considered and whether or not, as is always difficult in reporting on these processes in Japan, how much, you know, there is this sort of sense of tatemae and honne, the what is done for show and what is actually done truthfully. And one of the things when I was reporting on this whole scandal and process that a lot of Japanese women said to me that is really frustrating in corporate life, political life, academic life for women, is that there's still this sense that they're kind of always often two layers to decision processes. So that the women feel that there may be kind of an official meeting at which they are invited to be present. And yet they 
know that the real decisions are made at meetings at which they are not invited, and that they are often meetings that happen after hours, over drinks, at which women who frankly have family responsibilities cannot be present. And so one wonders if this is going to be a similar situation in which a decision will be made by a much smaller group and then the, you know, the gender equal committee will be offered a rubber stamp. Mm. I don't know that to be true, so I don't want to suggest that is definitely what is happening. But in reporting how these things happen over time and talking to lots of women in Japan, there is this nervousness that that could potentially be what happens here, that the the process is not entirely transparent. Well, it's interesting because I did notice that one of the faces that was floated in the lineup of potential successors that you tweeted out was former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who is as about uh, as intertwined yes. with the Olympics as anyone can get. Right. Obviously very well connected and very much a part of that existing establishment. Of course. Right. I mean, he would also have the same issue in that he is currently still, despite not being prime minister, he is a member of the, the government. And that would be a question of whether he'd have to resign from his position. But one assumes that if he were offered this and decided to take it, that wouldn't be so much of a problem for him because it would be much more prominent to be head of the Olympic Committee than to be the not prime minister lawmaker. But, but again, I don't know. I'm not speaking from a position of knowledge on, on that. Zooming out a bit, we've got these Olympic Games that have already been delayed for one year by the pandemic. They're now only five months away. The vaccine has only just started to be rolled out in Japan and the Games are incredibly unpopular amongst Japanese. When you look at the polls, I think around 80% are in favour of cancelling the Games. So what do you think is the prognosis for these Olympics that are supposed to start on July 23rd? Such a good question. I mean... The Japanese government and the organizing committee seem very determined to hold the event. And, you know, when there was a a story in the UK press that, um, you know, it already was a foregone conclusion that they had decided to cancel it, there was an immediate and vociferous reaction to uh, combat that. And then they've been releasing these playbooks in which they have outlined some of the protocols that they will be instituting in order to manage, you know, more than 10,000 athletes, a certain number of media, a certain number of the entourages that inevitably come with the athletes, the coaches, potentially their families. So it's kind of hard to see how they could stage it without there being some kind of public health outbreak. I mean, certainly the Japanese public is not going to be vaccinated 100% or anywhere close to it by the time the Olympic ceremony occurs. And that doesn't put aside the fact that athletes are coming from countries all over the world where many of them will not have had the opportunity to get vaccinated. It's not a prerequisite for coming to Japan for the Olympics. That being said, the political will is very, very strong here. So I just don't know what they will do. I mean, it seems very unlikely that they're going to invite any international spectators. But as you know, there are sporting events that are occurring in Japan with some spectators. There are symphony halls that have uh, audience members in them. So there's just a very different approach to how to manage the pandemic here in Japan. And so I'm wondering if they're just hoping. Uh, It seems almost magical thinking a little bit that they can somehow pull it off. (laughs) Well, I'm sure this scandal surrounding Mori is also going to throw another real spanner into the works, even if 
you know, Maury isn't completely indispensable as was suggested. For someone to take over with five months to go and to actually want to take over in the context of this pandemic, I'm sure that they might have some difficulty trying to find someone who wants to take on a challenge this big with so little time. Right, right. I mean, in some ways it's not, it, it's some, it needs to be someone that doesn't have, you know, the political um, liability. Like that makes one wonder about someone like Seiko Hashimoto or Shinzo Abe, whether or not they want to take something on. And then if it ends up being canceled, you know, that's your legacy, right? You know, you presided over the canceled Olympics. Um, is that what Abe wants? Is that what... Um, you know, if she has further ambitions, is that something that Seiko Hashimoto wants? The idea that Moni was indispensable always did not seem like a particularly persuasive argument to me. I mean, it's a very large organization with a lot of people who have been working toward it. He's kind of the public face. So in a lot of ways, what they need to find is a, somebody who the public and the international community will have confidence in, not so much someone who's like intimately familiar with the day-to-day. Um, and, and as it happens, there are probably plenty of people who are already that. I'd like to ask one more broad question to wrap up this conversation. Mm. Uh, You know, it was former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe who really brought the Olympics to Japan. It was his passion project while he was in office. But also while he was in office, during his time as Prime Minister, he promised he would make Japan a place where women would shine. And as we've already mentioned in this conversation, one of the Tokyo Olympic visions is to focus on this concept of unity and diversity. So... I wonder what you think this incident with Mori and the resulting public criticism says about the status of women in Japanese society. Well, it's not good, right? Um, the fact that the president of the organization that is the most international-facing organization that Japan has, that is supposed to, you know, was supposed to put them out on the world stage. Um, and as you say, that has in its charter unity and diversity would make a remark somewhat behind closed doors and then kind of double down on it when forced to apologize mm. is not a good commentary on sort of the entrenched sexism in Japanese culture that he thought. And, and, and by the way, in that meeting, the people in the meeting laughed when he made that comment and nobody objected to it in the meeting. So I think that was one comment that um, Kazuko Fukuda, the woman, one of the women who wrote the petition, the Change.org petition, said was very dismaying, was it was not just that he made the comment, that people felt either laughed because they thought it was funny or felt they had to laugh because this is a, you know, the accepted view in Japan. And then in terms of looking at Abe's record, he you know, originally had a target that by 2020, 30% of um, people in management would be women. It's now only 12%. He did bring down the waiting list for daycare, but it's still very difficult in a lot of crowded Tokyo neighborhoods to get a slot, I'm told. And you know, given a country where the number of babies being born every year falls every year, that seems mm. fairly astonishing that their only achievement is that they've reduced daycare lists rather than that they don't have abundant space in them in terms of the oft um, boasted figure that Japan has a higher labor force participation rate among women than even the United States. Abe had said that at Davos, um, the World Economic Forum. 
but more than half of those women are in part-time or contract jobs, which are very unstable. And COVID, the pandemic, has really revealed how unstable those jobs are, because more than half of the jobs that have been lost in Japan have been um, jobs occupied by women over the pandemic. You know, they tend to be represented disproportionately in jobs that are easily cut, and also in the industries that have suffered the most, right? Hospitality, lodging, um, the industries that have been criticized quite vociferously during the pandemic when people want to lay blame for who's spreading COVID have been, um, you know, like the hostess bars of Kabukicho. You know, again, it's women that are criticized. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of ways in which the pandemic itself has revealed sort of disproportionate um, impact on women. The suicide rate among women has risen for seven straight months in 2020. So a lot of ways in which um, Japanese society has been exposed as not being a place um, where a woman can shine after Abe um, left his post. Um, You know, I don't want to sound like he didn't do anything because uh, he did uh, raise it as an issue so that people were talking about it. There are more women on boards. Um, There is a higher labor force participation among women. There are lower daycare Um, waiting list, but still there's so much more to be done. Matoka Rich, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was the New York Times' Matoka Rich, and this is the closest this podcast will ever come to being the daily. Thank you to Matoka for joining us. Links to her reporting are in the episode notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, maybe you're a first-time listener, help us out. Give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcasting platform you use. It will help other people find the show. Thanks very much to all the people who've reviewed us recently, including Court Jester from the United States, who says, I generally enjoy the approach, but it feels too Tokyo-based. Which, yeah, I totally agree, and I'd love to do more episodes of Deep Dive from around Japan. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be reporting from Tohoku on the 311 anniversary, but I'm always keen to hear guest recommendations for who could come on the show. Find me on Twitter at omhboyd or email me directly at deepdive at japantimes.co.jp if you'd like to get in touch. That's it for this week. Until next time, Hotsukare-sama. Hotsukare-sama.